on Infosel, podcast, mis harutab välispoliitika sõimest lahti. Mina olen Laura-Sofia Tohver. So, hello everybody. Uh, we have a guest uh, in our podcast. It's Tom Sutton from, U- from the UK. Uh, he studies politics and international relations in Lancaster University. And also, we met in 2018 in Model European Parliament session in Toledo. Yeah, again, it's the third guest that we have met there. <laughs> But, you know world is uh, small. So, Tom, hello, welcome. Hello. Nice to see you. you. Thank you for having me. Yes. So, uh, I think let's uh, start uh, what do you, let's start with Estonian politics because it's interesting that uh, sometimes uh, Tom sends, uh, sends uh, me and Maxim uh, Estonian uh, politics uh, related memes and it's so funny that someone from the UK is so interested in it. So, let's talk about that. What do you think about Estonian politics? Okay, so I I I accept it's uh, it would be rather strange um for someone from the UK to um have an interest uh, in Estonian memes. Uh but basically, uh, like like you said, I am um I study politics and international relations at Lancaster University and um I was kind of st- stuck on what to do for my dissertation before I graduate. Um, so I, I, I originally started to talk, wanted to do one on EU-Russian relations and kind of how European enlargement has affected that and kind of, and so forth. And as I started to do my research, um, I noticed that more and more of my research was starting to gravitate towards Estonia. And obviously, I have friends in other Baltic states, in Lithuania, Latvia, through Model European Parliament at university. But I, it just became a natural progression. And I just I found myself being more interested in Estonian politics as part of my research. And I knew I could speak to you and Maxim and others uh, to get your opinions on things and kind of your lived experience living there. So... I just started to get more and more into it. And then obviously there was the, there was the recent government scandal uh, that led to yes. the collapse of the government <laughs> and, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, the installation of Kaya Kalas. So obviously because of, uh, uh, like the same in the UK, when there is a rather spicy time in your politics, the natural, if in doubt, meme it out. So yes. um, <laughs> I, I started just making memes based on what I understand and sending them to you, Maxim, and others to see what you thought. And you thought you found them funny stuff. That was very, yes. very nice to know. <laughs> really funny, actually. Like, but, uh, but also, uh, what, do you, uh, what are your thoughts on then the rise of right-wing politics in Estonia? And what is your, your research about that you're doing about Russia's... Uh, It was, I think, about uh, uh, how Russia impacts Estonia. Was it more about that? Yes and no. It's basically how does, obviously, as a rather small country in the EU, Mm -hmm. how does Estonia kind of influence decision-making on EU-Russian relations? Because um, we have to accept it's not really a coherent set of relations. There's 27 countries. They all have different, obviously it used to be 28. Um, And obviously we in the UK and France and Germany, we have a different reason to have relations with Russia than Estonia may do or the other Baltic states or 
um, you know, countries in the European neighbourhood, European neighbourhood policy countries like Ukraine. We have different reasons to engage or in some cases not engage um, with uh, Russia. So my argument so far is that there's no coherent set of relations, but Estonia Mm -hmm. contributes more to the table than you would assume it's size would allow because of its history the obviously the you know the illegal occupation over so many years uh, since 19 from 1940 yes. to 1991 you know so that kind of history that legacy lives on because russia russia sees itself as the continuity state to the soviet union it took its international obligations on it took its nuclear arsenal it took its seat on the U, U, uh, united nations security council because of these things that legacy has lived on and mm-hmm. Russia openly admits to having a revisionist foreign policy. It seeks to act in its what it perceives to be its rational self-interest to achieve what it desires as a nation. But that naturally leads to competition with other states. And obviously to counter that, Estonia has joined the EU. It has tried to move itself to the centre of European influence rather than where it finds itself geographically. And the same with NATO, because they do that for protection. Obviously, a lot of UK, a lot of UK um, uh, service personnel uh, are based in Estonia. We send uh, Royal Air Force jets for the yes. Baltic Air Policing Mission. And we also send um, ground crew as well for training and also just to keep up that kind of protection mission to kind of keep the collective security in NATO, because obviously with the Russian-Estonian border being the frontier of what Russia into what is NATO. So, yeah, it's um, it, my my coming to this as a an area of research was, um, in my in my view, it was, it was somewhat natural uh, because I started off looking at a broader picture and I just kind of scaled it down and I just scaled down to what am I most interested in? What am I able to argue? What do I understand? And I just kind of got dragged in. But like I've said, jokingly to people, you start looking at like a YouTube video about Estonian Mm -hmm. politics and then you end up going down a YouTube rabbit hole to listen to Estonian music, which you don't understand as someone who doesn't speak Estonian. But what I will say is you do have good music. Even if I don't oh, understand it. Oh, thank you. You have good uh, music. Who even have if you uh, listened it. to? I'm just trying to think. Um, oh, names have escaped me. Maybe um, Noblu? I think I saw that. I think I ended up listening to a bit of, is it Carl Eric Tauker? Oh, Carl Eric Tauker, yes. Yeah, uh, I listened uh, to his. And then there was, like, there was this like weird song that was, it was supposed to be on, it, when it was supposed to be, it was in... It was on, like, you know, like the tryout show for Eurovision that you guys have? Yes, we have. Uh, it's called it was, Eesti Laul in Estonia. That's it, that's it, that's it. Yes. So there was this... You, you uh, listened to it. Well, no, there, well, no our, our, there was this... this song, it was like I think it was like this metal band. And I'm not a metal fan, but the song was, like, really weird. So it kind of went viral on YouTube a few years I ago. I think you know... I think I know uh, who are you yeah. talking about. Uh, I don't remember also... Uh, I, I think the band was earlier called, like, Vinny Buch or something That's, like that. Yes, yes. yes. They have so, this... They, I think uh, it was uh, everybody. I know most people in in Estonia felt that it was very weird, but that's why we liked it. Yes. With Eurovision, you either you either take it seriously or you have a laugh. It's the golden rule. Um, um, right we now. never win. 
given that we never win, uh, we might as well start having a laugh at it, I think. But yes. Yes, we, we have also uh, one only one time in 2001 with uh, Donald Badar and uh, Dave Benton, who, who, won the, who won the Eurovision then. But now also, most people actually don't take it that seriously anymore, but it's still a thing. And right now, there's a lot of debate, I don't know, in Facebook, everybody's saying like, oh, we should not do that anymore. It's not like, yeah, well, but we still do it. Yeah. This is this has persisted in the UK because for years because we haven't won since 1990. We used to win all the time, but we haven't mm-hmm. won since 1997. And then there's the joke that it took an American to win for us in 1997 because it was Katrina and the waves. So yes. uh, if you pardon the pun, when we won that time, we were literally walking on sunshine um, because uh, obviously that walking on sunshine was one of their songs years ago. Um, and yes, um, but. And obviously with Brexit, uh, when we started doing badly after Brexit, there was the joke mm-hmm. of, oh, have we done anything to upset them? I wonder what that could be uh, that um, we've done to upset them, um, etc. But yeah, it's it's a strange one. Okay, but I would like to, I have straightforwardly, what do you think about Ekra? I, I, I know okay. about Mart Helma, uh, Martin Helma. Okay, um, I have... I haven't done that much research into Ekre. I've mentioned them like once or twice in my dissertation. Um, mm-hmm. What I will say is most of my opinions on this have been formed by actually talking to people rather than um, rather than um, research. Because my, assum- my assumption was that because they are an unavowedly like a very Estonian nationalist party, mm-hmm. that I falsely kind of understood their position towards the Russian minority because obviously I was reading things online about you know things you know rhetoric that um either one of the Helmets, either you know Mart or Martin uh had said um you know I think one of them one of them referred to them as parasites or leeches or something yes so that was that was my understanding but um you know talking to people I was getting the impression that their kind of social conservative rhetoric despite what they'd said about the Russian minority, was actually, like in in both communities, was picking up favour with older, more traditionalist-minded voters, which was interesting because I thought, well, it's interesting to see how, on certain issues, they're willing to forgive the rhetoric in things that you said about them and, you know, a core facet of one's identity and decide to vote purely on the issues and what and the kind of values within, which was interesting. But my my concern is about that in comparison to the um, the uh, the uh, the right uh, you know kind of right wing politics in the UK is I didn't realise until what the researcher had done actually how intense they were in the sense that. Um, Obviously, that people talk here about we had UKIP. They're a bit more of a fr- they've they've kind of they've gone a bit more extreme now. But they've they're 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 intensifying has coincided with their electoral decline because yes. they were considered the party of Nigel Farage. So he you know it was almost like a one man band. They had other people, mm-hmm. but he was the face. He was the but what he did and what don't get me wrong, he's a very right wing politician. Yes, but as very right wing politicians go. He was the more he was the more kind of 
sensible face. For want of a better term, that's a very ba- crude way of putting it, a very bad way of putting it, because I, I mean, I don't, I don't share his politics. I'm very clear about that. But he would, he made a conscious effort as a UKIP leader that, and when he, in the Brexit party, that if someone did say something incredibly controversial, he would suspend them and he would take action upon that because he wanted to try and drag the party into the mainstream rather than the fringe. Um, but with Ecre, what I've noticed is, you know, um, their rhetoric seems to be much stronger over um, immigration, uh, refugee policy, um, LGBTQ plus rights, etc. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the right wing in the UK tends to take a more libertarian stance towards that kind of thing these days. In yes, that, well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they may kind of be critical about forward progression, but in terms of what's happened so far, a lot of it they accept that same sex marriage is a thing, and mm-hmm. and whatnot. But they they may a lot of them do have problematic views about other uh, elements of reform in that respect going forward. But in terms of what has been done so far, there is only a fringe of that that want to redress the reforms of the past, so to speak, which I am not seeing with ECRE. So they're definitely a more extreme party than we see in the British political mainstream. Mm-hmm. We have people like that and we have parties like that, yes. but it's, they are, it's only likely for them to get representation on like very local level, like local councils and things like that. You. I would very much doubt that we would see things like that in our parliament, at least, especially because we don't have a proportional representation voting system, which kind of shuts those parties out. We, we, we've only had, um, we only at one time we had two UKIP MPs and both of them were conservative MPs who had left the conservative party. And as a, as a kind of point of principle, uh, resigned Parliament and stood for their seat again, like ran for their seat again and then won. But then one of them lost the seat and then they both ended up losing their seat later on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we, I, I don't think we would have that in the UK. But I have noticed stark differences, definitely. I think both of them, uh, like Nigel Farage and Ekre Party, have benefited a lot from populism because Ekre has these very outstanding views that really differ from other parties' views. Uh, they, ha- they have standed out because of it and because people believe that they have this like strong... Be- be- like, like, they have strong uh, mechanisms for dealing with the problems, then people start to believe that, yes, I think it's a way to go because they seem very confident in what they believe in. And I think that it is a problem in Estonia. And fun fact also, uh, I think it was uh, uh, in this month uh, in Narva, they opened uh, their ECRA um, ECRA group of people so uh, now ECRA has extended to Narva also and it's it's very interesting because they have actually many voters there now so many even uh, like Estonian Russians uh, have started to vote for them because they have this very strong nationalist uh, uh, belief system but okay so uh, and also about Nigel Farage I would like to point out that uh, I saw this when you uh, when it was declared that you are leaving from Europe so Brexit ha- uh, was happening then I I uh, believe that I I saw the video when where uh, Nigel Farage did his speech in the European Parliament that I always knew that one day I don't remember the quote but it was very it went viral that she stood he stood up and said that oh 
I knew that it was going to happen one day or something like that. Um, yes, I remember. I remember the quote actually. He said something along the lines of, "I've been in this place for twenty years, and I said that I said that I would lead a campaign for the for the United Kingdom to leave the mm-hmm. European Union, and you all laughed at me." Well, you're not laughing now. That was the quote <laughs> I remember. But the, pro- the problem at the time is, yes, he would occasionally say something which would ma- even make me laugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he has a certain wit about him. I will credit him that. But the problem was on the night that the tw- the 23rd of June, the night of the 23rd to 24th of June, 2016, will be indelibly scarred on my brain for the rest of my life. I will make no. I will be very clear about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have moderated my views about the whole situation since then, as I've kind of, you know, really, I've, I mean, I've aged for four, nearly five years. So, uh, yes, but uh, on that night, because I, I remember I was helping at my local um, count where I live at home, voted remain, but only just. Um, but it was in, it, it was interesting that there was a correlation where I live between like kind of how affluent the area was and, how they voted remain versus leave. And we saw that across the country. Well, we didn't really see that across the country, but we certainly saw that where I lived, um, which is which was interesting. But um, the, inter- um, but the, pro- the thing was, I remember, um, because Nigel Farage had conceded earlier in the night that he didn't believe that it was going to happen. He thought that he'd lost. And then he had to very quickly call a press conference at 4 a.m., and I believe he actually had a beer in hand while he did it, and he announced that he, you know that um, you know this this should be henceforth declared Britain's Independence Day. But he something he said in that clip kind of struck a lot of people in that he said, and it had been achieved without a shot being fired. Now the week before, um, a Labour Party MP, Joe Cox, had been murdered by a far right extremist in the street in broad daylight, um, wow. and. In doing so, he um, he was anna- it was announced that uh, he kind of as he as he committed it as he committed the crime he said that um, he he said something along the lines of put Britain first so it was clearly politically motivated um, and I'm you know I'm not I'm not saying clearly that you know Brexit led to that is a much more complicated situation now. but the mm-hmm. kind of political the toxic political narrative at the time was harmful. It was I, I I saw it change and it was a very, very toxic narrative and with competing forces that it was almost like a Pandora's box effect. You open the box and all kinds of horrible things come out. Um, so it was that was the one problem I had at the time going forward that, you know, you say, it was yes, it was done democratically. But it was not a nice process to go through and it would it would have still yes. been a very bad process. If I think I. Mm-hmm. I think we would like to talk. We sh- we should move on to talk more about more thoroughly about Brexit. That uh, yes, there was a referendum done in 2016, and I believe that there was the count of like 51 percent versus 49 percent. It was ridiculous. I remember that I uh, at the same time I was watching it live to go down when they were counting votes, and uh, I didn't believe it when it said that UK is going to leave Europe. I was like, wow, I, I couldn't believe it because it came just out of nowhere. But I, when we started actually listening, what some people said that I, I, I remember that this was 
it was very ridiculous. Some some claims were very ridiculous that why you were leaving because some fishermen thought that Europe, uh, the European Union, is uh, uh, stealing their money uh, from uh, like fishing accounts and so on. And I also saw that you did a publication on why is a European identity an ideal worth fighting for. So I would yes, like I yes. So I yes. So I would like you to talk about. Uh, what uh, is an ideal European identity and what are your uh, main thoughts on Brexit? I I will be honest, my views on that have changed a little bit since I wrote that. I wrote that about two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, pro- the problem here is I was shocked at Brexit at the time. But what has happened since has made me look back in a kind of look back over time and to be honest i it was it it was as long coming as our membership of the eu was and it's very but because it took so long to materialize that that's what made it so hard to comprehend because you we have first of all you have to look at what motivates countries to join the eu so what motivated Estonia to join the EU? Well, it spent decades in occupation. It had found mm-hmm. its independence and it needed a means of being able to contribute what it desired to the rest of the world as part of a larger entity. And the EU and NATO, but more so the EU, was the perfect way to do that because obviously, you know, Estonia is a world leader in technology. But could Estonia on its own, without any support, compete truly with the likes of Silicon Valley? No, it can't. It needs to be part of this wider structure. And that's why Mm -hmm. Estonia is able to be Europe's Silicon Valley um, and compete because it has that wider support net. For us, it was a little different because the, the the UK never really subscribed to a wider European identity. It was purely an economic decision for the UK because obviously in the in the 20th century, we started to decolonize um, as a country. And we, obviously we started to let go of uh, our, uh, you know, colonial, uh, uh, you know, uh, colonial states in Africa, Asia and South America, etc., and islands in the Caribbean. Um, so we were kind of, from a foreign policy perspective, we were starting to find our new way in the world. And it's natural, you know, the, obviously the UK-US special relationship, in my view, is a, you know, it's, it's, it's a situation that is very much predicated on American dominance. And that is natural. They are a country with a much larger economy than we have. We have a population. Exactly. exactly. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we also, while we are very normatively and politically allied we have similar ideals and we're both western liberal democracies they are just they are also a competitor they are an economic competitor so that and they're an economic competitor competitor that without european cooperation we will never be able to truly compete with on the same level so that is why so we I, you uh, so i understand that uh, you had also an identity crisis with the uk yeah. because estonia with uh, because uh, mainly contributed by uh, thomas hendrik kilves our then president thought that uh, estonia should take a lead in, uh, in it technology mm. then estonia took this kind of lead information technology but uh, what kind of identity does the uk then have because 
I, I, you, you're saying that uh, you joined the European Union because you didn't know uh, as a country uh, where you should uh, you lead. So then you thought that maybe you should take a lead in the European Union by helping other countries. Is that kind of correct? Yes, exactly. Because basi- basically it was a lot of... It is very much disagreed in public discourse because obviously... Um, uh, you know, um, the, a narrative persists when a country wants rules an empire on which, you know, the famous quote goes, the sun never sets. Mm-hmm. That narrative persists through time. But joining the EU was uh, purely, it was a form of uh, ma- decline management in terms of, we. it was an acceptance that we were declining comparatively. Obviously, our our, our economy was growing, but the rest of the world was growing quicker. So it was a case it was a case of it was an acceptance that we can either lead with France and Germany and ensure that there is no dominance of one particular country in Europe and that we can all cooperate together to build a, you know, as as an economic union, we can build Europe as a competitor to the United States and the rise of Asian economies like Russia and China as well. Uh, And especially when the when the Soviet Union was still uh, in formation, because that you know the um, the US and the USSR were considered the two superpowers, weren't they? So yes. we we kind of wanted to contribute to let's have a Europe in the middle that can com- economically compete, but that no country dominates. We didn't want Germany to dominate. We didn't want France to dominate. We wanted everyone to have their kind of contribution to it, but there's no kind of dominance within. But the problem there is while different governments stated at the time that that would lead to ever closer union a desire for an ever closer union never materialized in the same way as it did in other countries because mm-hmm. we had we, we joined the eu in 1973 we had a referendum on whether to stay in 1975 because we had a change of government and that government yes. and um while both labor the labor party and the conservative party in the 1970s had a division on whether we should be part of Europe or not. It was more pronounced in the Labour Party because the more moderate wing of the Labour Party agreed with the more moderate wing of the Conservative Party that uh, we should uh, enter in. But the more kind of socialist wing, the more left wing wing of the Labour Party um, didn't believe that. So the way it was settled in 1975, in the same way it was set, the, the Conservative Party tried to settle it in 2016, was let's have a referendum. But it went the other way in 1975, and then 60-something percent voted to stay. Um, but, but, when, we, uh, yeah. but when there was a decline in public opinion, and even in, uh, in the government, that we should maybe start leaving the European Union, because I remember that uh, the then, uh, I don't remember what was the name of the prime minister who did the referendum, David... Cameron, David Cameron. David Cameron, yes. yes. Uh, that uh, that why he actually did the referendum, because uh, at the time there was actually, I believe that there was such need even maybe. So where do you think that was maybe the time, like what, what year that it started going downhill? Yeah. Um, interestingly, it's not when people expect it. it was actually 1992, and I'll explain why. Really? Yes. Okay. It was 1992 because basically, what happened? What What happened was obviously, it, from between 1979 and 1990, we had Margaret Thatcher as the prime minister, and Margaret Thatcher was quite 
you're a skeptic, but in the sense of our position in the EU should be one of resistance. When you find something you don't like, you dig yourself in deeper. That was her stance. So what she decided to do is she was a major proponent of the Single European Act, which led to the single market in 1986. Um, uh, but she she had a rather kind of there was a kind of political conflict between Margaret Thatcher and Commission President Jacques Delors, um, who was more of a Eurofederalist uh, about kind of the level of political integration that the EU should go into. Um, Thatcher, obviously, as a free marketeer, uh, Thatcher was perfectly happy with um, economic integration. If anything, she was very she was very much for it. Uh, because it, you know, it, in her mind, it, um, it helped competition for British businesses. Um, but the problem was in 1992, uh, obviously the um, the Maastricht Treaty was ratified, and by this time, our Prime Minister was John Major, and it very much split. Obviously, the notion of a single currency, etc. It split the Conservative Party down. Well, not not quite down the middle. But it split them between a rather, you know, a plurality who were for it and a very vocal minority who were against it. But he had a very small majority. So their dissent could have derailed the entire thing. And Thatcher was very much against Thatcher. She was uh, obviously she was next prime minister this time, but she was still a very influential figure. And she was against the Maastricht Treaty at this at, uh, at this time because she saw it as a step too far. Um, and the argument was made that why don't we just put it to a referendum and be done with it? But that never happened. We ne- we we have never had a referendum on European treaty change. So before 2016, there before, was no referendum. We had no referendum on anything European based, other than the, mm-hmm. uh, we had no referendum between 1975 and 2016. And wow. we've, we've only had three national referendums in this country we've had obviously like should scotland go independent should Mm -hmm. northern ireland accept its peace agreement we've had things like that but we've never but we've only had three nationwide referendums in british history two of which have been on europe and the other one was and the other one was on whether we should change our voting system so um yeah it's the fact it is so strange we're not we don't like referendums really as a country it's very rare that we do them for this reason um and this kind of i think the aftermath has kind of shown that but so yeah so with maastricht um it was kind of it was forced through and then um obviously the lisbon treaty in 2008 coincided with um the uh with the financial crisis uh so that was also forced through by the labor government of gordon brown so this kind of resentment about, you know, um, about, you know, a lack of democracy and, you know, unelected bureaucrats, it's not just fed from perceptions of Europe. It's also perfect. It was also fed through perceptions of our government's relationship with Europe, because our government never gave us other than European Parliament elections, mm-hmm. which incidentally, very few people voted in because we tended to coincide them with our local elections. But very few people vote in them as well. So, you know, so a, a mixture of voter apathy, a lack of direct engagement and a lack of push from the government to engage on that. Before before the referendum, it was agreed by the government that any future treaty change would be subject to a referendum. But what happened was similar to what happened to Harold Wilson 
1975, uh, our Prime Minister then, our Labour Prime Minister then, David Cameron, he saw a rift in his party between pro-EU and Eurosceptics. Wow. Um, so he decided to take a gamble in 2013 and said, if I'm elected again, because he was in a coalition with the he was in the coalition with the Liberal Party in our country, mm-hmm. the Liberal Democrats. Um, and and they're they're very pro-EU party. They led the um they led the um they led the kind of the anti-Brexit movement uh, after. Um but um th- he said that if I'm elected um, on my own, uh, just as a majority conservative government in 2015, I will commit us to a referendum on in or out by 2017. And obviously, he did that. He did that a year earlier. Um, yes. But he he told Donald Tusk at the time, "Oh, it's okay because I won't be elected as a majority. I'll get a coalition again." That that's what he assumed, but it didn't. He actually got elected as as a majority government. Uh, on his own so um he kind of he had to commit to his manifesto pledge uh because obviously he backed remain uh but he wanted to put the it was more a gamble to put the issue to bed in his own party the issue was he didn't expect the british public the british voters to vote to leave but the problem the problem is uh in my view that referendum was not about europe in the slightest it was basically Mm -hmm. in my view it was putting the nation on trial about what are we as a nation in, ter- wow. in the sense that um, I'm being slightly performative language. But what I mean by that is um, we just had years of austerity um, and, you know, government spending cuts. Um, and, you know, obviously, while we are a country that is very dependent on immigration economically, um, that narrative, that positive narrative of immigration didn't necessarily disseminate through every person, and they didn't. There are people who don't believe it, in exactly. this immigration, and exactly. I see this is very interesting narrative that uh, you didn't know what what was an identity of your nation at the time. Mm. But it's interesting to make it very clear that what were the main arguments for uh, leaving the EU? That wh- why people said that uh, because I saw many videos also that people said that oh we should be more economically independent EU is stealing our money is it actually true what do you think about it well yeah, yeah. Mm, it's a it's a tough one because the the official Leave campaign because Nigel Farage was not part of the official Leave campaign he ran his own campaign oh wow um, and the reason that was is because he wanted to make it about immigration. Mm. And the le- the leader of um, the well, the kind of the political strategist on the um, vote, official vote leave campaign later became um, kind of Boris Johnson's political advisor. Uh, you may have seen on my on my Facebook and stuff. I was making jokes about when yes. he broke lockdown and stuff. He's he since got fired because he said something disparaging about um, Boris Johnson's girlfriend. Um, so he then fired him for that rather than breaking lockdown. Um, but he, I will get. But, the but it was not about, an official excuse. It was like yeah. well, no, he, he brought another official excuse for it, but to fire yeah. him. Uh, oh well, well, no, no. I believe the actual excuse was that it was his comments towards Boris Johnson's oh, wow. girlfriend. Um, he wanted to leave anyway, so he, he made it clear that he'd wanted to. He didn't want to stay in government for too long. But basically. His job before was he was um, the political strategist on the leave, on the Leave campaign, and he his argument was that 
the people who are voting on the basis of immigration will vote to leave anyway, because that's what they believe in. So they need to make the economic argument and the kind of what are we as a country argument to switch the undecideds, the moderates, people who still want to have cooperation with Europe, but as an independent country, as a wholly independent country. So he kind what the 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 idea he came up with is we often joke in the UK that we don't that our national religion is not Christianity. It's instead our healthcare system. Because we had because we, we have the National Health Service, we set up universal healthcare in nineteen forty eight and it's purely government run. We're very very territorial over it as a country and the the covid crisis has kind of deepened that a little bit because um it's seen as through government failure it's seen as the only kind of thing that has kept it remotely on track and the only thing that has prevented it from getting worse um despite how the strain the strain it's been under so he they came up with a figure of that we they said that we pay 350 million pounds a week to be in the EU, we mm-hmm. don't because we had a we, well we didn't because we had a rebate, uh, so we only paid about 160 million pounds a week. The interesting thing is it was actually because when people get that when people get their tax return in the UK, it comes a little pie chart on the back that explains like what your tax money is being spent on. So how much is going on healthcare? How much is going on welfare? How much is going on education, defence? And the two smallest segments of the pie chart were the EU and foreign aid. Interestingly, wow. they were the two that people complained about the most, not the hundreds of pounds every taxpayer was paying in um, debt interest. No, not that. Just, mm. the, But the two smallest segments of the pie were the two most contested, which I found quite interesting. Um, it is. But the argument was, if we can save the £350 million a week, we can spend that on our healthcare system. And people love that because... Our healthcare system had been starved of funds because of government austerity after the financial crisis, and it started to struggle. And we had a shortage of staff, etc. So people thought that if we were able to spend that money in our healthcare system, because while we spend billions every year on a healthcare system, three hundred and fifty million is what anyway. a hospital costs to be built. So it's a lot of money. So a lot of money to go into it every week. People thought it was a good idea. And it's like an was... interesting slippery slope technique used. That, oh, yes. if you don't use that money in here, we would use it in here. And people are like, okay, I, I think yeah. I would also go for it. But it's yes. actually not the case we are seeing because you already put so much money into the healthcare system. Yes. So is it much better then? Well, well, no, well the, the interesting thing is this promise was made and it was mm-hmm. made by conservative cabinet ministers who were active because they, they agreed to break collective agreements over the referendum, you know, Cabinet ministers could pick their own side and they wouldn't be punished for it. So we had about a number of our uh, cabinet ministers were advocating leave. And they were, including Boris Johnson, who was not in the cabinet at the time. He'd, mm-hmm. he'd been mayor of London and he'd become an MP again. Um, but, you know, very influential conservative politicians were um, saying this line that we're going to put £350 million a week into our healthcare system. And then what happened after? Did that money go to the to the healthcare system? No, it didn't. And they, where they said, did it go then? Oh, where it, did it go? I don't know. Um, oh, yeah, no idea, no idea where it went. Um, <gasps> they, they, they've said they'll put more money into the healthcare system, but three hundred million pounds a week? Mm-hmm. No, no, that hasn't gone in. Uh, so that's caused a lot of um, con- uh, 
Controversy. Uh, controversy there, yes. Um, okay. But, yeah, it's definitely an economic argument had to be made and a sovereignty mm-hmm. argument. It, was, the, it wasn't fought on immigration other than um, it was fought on immigration from a sovereignty perspective in that f- by ending freedom of movement, we can decide what skills we want. It wasn't about stopping immigration. It was about controlling immigration and deciding the skill sets that we wanted. But can you control it now more effectively because of the leaving the EU? Well, or what are your thoughts on it? Well, can we? Objectively, can we? Yes. However, okay. however, mm-hmm. the problem was, OK, so if I were to move to and speaking to friends of mine who've gone to study abroad, if I was to move to another EU country before we left the EU, I would have had to have registered with that country to say that um, before they can give me like my social security number or whatever they do in that country, um, that I would have to prove to them that I have a job or I'm there to study or I have the means to support myself. And then they would then give me the credentials I would need to be able to access services in that country. That's how they do it. It's to, it's to ensure that people actually are economically active. But we never did that in the UK. Now, don't get me wrong. People mm. like your EU citizens came here to work. And, you know, my, my, you know, my neighbours are EU citizens, both of whom are university lecturers, um, etc. Um, you know, I know a lot. I know EU citizens I know here are either here to study or they're here in very high uh, you know, highly mm. skilled jobs as well but as. Aren't our, you uh, yeah. part of the Schengen zone anymore? We, then? we never were. We oh, never were. oh, you never were. No, we never were. We got an opt out. That's to interesting. That. Same with the like the mm. euro. We had an opt out to that. Um, mm, yes, yes, yes. But this 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 was the thing is um, while. But it wasn't that hard before. You yeah. could just actually now you have to prove them you work there or do something. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But you didn't have to do well, that before. The, the, the mm. point the point I'm trying to make is while people came here to work and study, yes, etc., uh, as European legislation allowed, our government was very poor in enforcing it, as other EU countries did. And then when it became an issue in public discourse, they would then blame Brussels and say there was nothing they could do. But they were doing much less than other European countries would do. Because I believe so it was the like, weird exactly. argument technique used by politicians to yes. make themselves look better. Yes, the exactly. Public. It was, it was like, oh we, oh, we can't do anything. That's Br- Brussels. Mm-hmm. Brussels makes us have an open border to EU citizens. Not that they could actually make sure that those people were working, etc. You know, restrictions were able to be put in place, um, etc. And you know that goes across the board. It doesn't matter if someone's a doctor or someone is doing kind of you know more manual work. We need we need both. That's why we took. That's why we uh, most countries take in immigrate immigrants for both because you need doctors, you need scientists, but you also you need, need people in the food industry and you know like mm-hmm. and you know working in food and food processing. You need both. You know, we have a diverse labour market for a reason, because you need people in every kind of job. Mm-hmm. And when but there's to a make shortage, it, you need to yes. be mm-hmm. But to make uh, things even more clearer, now you, that you have left EU last year, so what are you then as a country? Have your identity become more clearer that what should be the site that you are seeking as a nation? Can you answer that question or not? It's it's a, it's a tough one because I think what is desired is different to what is actually materialising. Because mm-hmm. the narr- the narrative is, and I hope this narrative does fulfil itself, is that we c- while now we've ju- now we've left the EU, we can kind of cooperate with Europe and we can be a truly global nation, 
and we can trade around the world and it's great and we can be we can, you know we can be um you know a country that's independent but cooperative like like like, it looks like, like uh, canada or new yeah. zealand or australia but just with a larger population it looks like right, what, 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 what the, the uk looked like before uh, uh before um going into the uh, European yeah. Union like as a, as they were very powerful before that but then now you want to uh, re- regain this kind of powerfulness yeah without without the um additions of colonialism yes um kind of mm-hmm. that's kind of what's being pushed um but the problem is we have another we have another identity crisis in of itself in the in my view the nation is fracturing at the same time because wow. uh, obviously we have the threat of Scottish independence, the challenge of that. Um, because you know we have to we have to accept that Scotland did vote to remain overwhelmingly in the EU, as did North, well uh, Northern Ireland less so, but it still was comfortably it voted. How to remain. are you dealing with it uh, well, with the, with Scotland and Northern Ireland? Well, the, in my view, the problem is I don't think the government is dealing with it because the problem is. Mm. The the government naturally want to confront the challenges that they see in Scottish nationalism, and in my view, it, it does have a divisive element to it. Because, um, in in time to break it apart, but it's their way of dealing with it is to not is to attack it head on rather than um, rather than confront the bits they don't like, but work a solution to win the people of Scotland over to a more powerful Scotland within a united United Kingdom, if you get what I mean. Yes, yes um, I think I do. So th- this is the issue because we are a country of, we're a country of four constituent countries, but we have a unitary system of governance. So we have devolved administration. So like Wales runs its own health and it runs its own education. And as to Scotland, you know, there are certain things that are, you know, decided locally. But we don't have a federal system like the United States or Germany or Austria do. And there's an argument there that, that might that may help because you are very clearly saying, okay, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, um, you can decide these things, and Westminster can decide these things. And then there's also the argument about how do we then deliver power locally in England? Because 80% of British people are English, or live in England at least. Um Obviously, you know, you know, some of them will be Welsh, Scottish, and Northern Irish people. Who so move. there are arguments being made that maybe, maybe we should give them more independence to decide their own dis. Uh, yes, to keep to make them, their own choices. Exactly to keep them in the country. But are you right now at at this very moment? Are you more separated than ever before? Before leaving the EU, as Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales. It's a it's a tough one because you have you have to consider that. Prior to the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, Northern Ireland went through decades of sectarian conflict. Um, so you have to consider that you know, while there have been increased inc- incidents of um, you know terror activity, etc., and you know counterterrorism in that re- regard has been 2010 mm-hmm. exactly, uh, and especially since the referendum and the threat of the threat of a hard border in Ireland, they circumvented that by Northern Ireland kind of gets like special treatment to keep that border open. 
but it means that there's increased restrictions on things going from north. From how how are Britain. there right now with border system uh, between okay. Ireland and Northern Ireland? Okay, okay. So with Northern Ireland, and Ireland uh, it is because we're in the EU, and because ne- the thing is, neither of us are a Schengen state. Well, when we were in the EU, ne- neither of us were a Schengen state, but it's a Schengen-style border in that there is absolutely no checks whatsoever. You can walk between them because and. We've we've had freedom of movement since 1920, since the formation of, um, the, well, the Irish Free State before it became an independent republic. Um, since Ireland, minus the six counties of Northern Ireland, left the UK in, 19, in the early 1920s, we've had freedom of movement since then. Irish people, incident, incidentally, because of um, the fact that they can vote there and here, you actually have more voting rights in the UK as an Irish citizen. As you do, than you do as a British citizen, because you also have the right to vote for the European Parliament back in Ireland. So it is very, in, it is very interesting. Because, be, but like, if I move to Ireland tomorrow, I could vote because we have that reciprocal agreement, and we always have. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, uh, it's a completely open border. But that was put under threat because it wasn't people. We could have because it was a non-Schengen state. People weren't the concern. It was trade, and it was to keep the integrity of the single market. So it was how do, how do we do it? And Theresa May came up with an well, Theresa May's government came up with an idea of a system that after the transition, there would be an automatic process that would kind of fall into place until an agreement is reached. But the Eurosceptic wing of the Conservative Party didn't like it. And the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland didn't like it either, who were propping up. They had a they had like a supply agreement to keep the government in place. Uh, They, you know, they voted with the government to keep the government from falling um before we had an election so the problem the, the, pro, the problem was that um that obviously that that deal fell through and johnson was a uh, renegotiated it so we now have a system whereby it's almost as if on trade terms northern ireland is still part of the eu so the trade the border checks are done or are going to be done because they're still implementing the system it's been partially implemented at the ports so like i mean i'm from i'm from near liverpool so um the when when a a ferry goes from liverpool to belfast the border checks will be done in liverpool and not in northern ireland because if they do it that Mm. way then that means then that the 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 trans uh, the thing something can be driven then to ireland because they know then that it meets the criteria to be Mm permissible in the single market but that's caused a lot of tensions in ireland because the problem is that sectarian conflict was between people who wish to be part of the united kingdom or people who desire the united ireland and obviously that's that that split is still there but northern ireland has a power sharing government to meet to make sure that those two communities work together mm-hmm. um so th- this is the thing and it because it because it instills a difference in how Northern Ireland is treated compared to the rest of the UK. That's caused problems with elements of the unionist community. And it's mm-hmm. it's kind of it's presented a challenge to the peace process. It's 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 held up so far, but it has certainly been challenged, which is scary. So 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 we're seeing that, that with leaving the EU actually these tensions have already 
stayed there since you said in, from 1992 mm-hmm. when people became more Eurosceptic. But I would like to ask, like, to wrap it up the, the topic more, that, that talk, let's talk about feelings. Would you have stayed in the EU or, or how are you more conflicted about it now when, when you have left, left uh, from the EU? What are your opinion about well, it? This is, this is the interesting thing, because this can bring me on to the vaccine rollout in the UK. We can talk about that because too. That, yes. that, you know, because th- this is the thing that has changed my opinion uh, a lot, because I'm still very pro-EU in that I believe it is better to work together with other countries, and it is a mm-hmm. fundamentally good institution. Okay. But my problem with the rollout has been, I accept that while we have left, I accept that it was once you leave, you have chosen to leave, Therefore, the consequences is that you can't get special treatment anymore. I totally understand okay. that. I totally understand mm-hmm. that. that. That's fair. You know, all, all kind of international agreements, when they come to an end, they end. And I appreciate that. But the problem... So, but the, the, as AstraZeneca yeah. rolled out also, that uh, now EU isn't complaining that we, we cannot get the, the, uh, the vaccine fast enough. So you are saying that uh, we should not get special treatment? Or, well, well, or what? Well, 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 here's the thing. I accept that AstraZeneca um, have not fully delivered on what they agreed, despite mm-hmm. not for the want of trying. They have tried to, but they have had failures which have prevented them from doing so with the EU. Obviously, we have a separate supply chain other than in terms of we make a lot of our own. Oh, okay. And we, we've mm-hmm. exported some in. I understand the EU's argument to some extent about us not exporting any out. I I understand that argument somewhat, but my concern is if you look at it from the European institution, the perspective of the European institutions, well, not from their perspective, but if you look at them, um, it's a kind of it com- their position comes from one, in my view, of incompetence. They 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 don't want to accept that they have struggled to kind of get their they, they, they've struggled to kind of get an effective strategy to roll them out and to get enough yes the response has not there. has been ineffective yeah so right we, now estonia yeah. has a gold medal in uh in vaccine rate no no not in vaccine rate but uh the people who have been affected by covid19 rate mm. it's it's it, the it, highest it, this this is the thing but what is what is it hasn't angered me, but what has upset me as someone who do- considers themselves to be pro-European is rather than to look at themselves and go, we need to improve, mm-hmm. they undertook a blame game. Because I will be the first thing, our government is not without blame and AstraZeneca are not without blame. Mm-hmm. But I found it rather reprehensible that the governments of France and Germany started to, contrary to the scientific evidence, delegitimize the efficacy of the vaccine, which is very... We should dang- also take the yeah. blame. Exactly. Of the, of the- which is a very mm-hmm. dangerous thing to do, especially in France, where data suggests that a lot of people were very reluctant to take the vaccine in the first place. And it needs to be a position of encouragement, because I understand that some people are just naturally concerned. I appreciate that. But the problem is you need to win people over and claiming that a vaccine that you want to have is ineffective is a very dangerous thing to do. And data since, in terms of people's perception, like obviously, because we, we're able to vaccinate 3 million people a week because we've been able to utilise our very centralised healthcare system. 
Now 40% of the population has been vaccinated in your country. That's impressive. Yeah, um, over 50%. I think think it's about 55% of the adult population has had Mm -hmm. one dose. And we're going to, and we're worrying about the second doses later. Friends of mine who've got medical conditions have had them. Um, my parents' generation—they've all had them. My mum's, wow. uh, my mum had hers uh, recently, um, which I was very relieved about. Uh, my elderly neighbours got theirs months ago, um, which I was very, very um, relieved about. Um, In Estonia, it's so hard to get on with. Yes, right now my grandparents haven't got them yet, but my great grandmother really? got it. Yes, we, my grandparents haven't got it yet, even the first dose uh, right now. So it's so hard to get your hands on it. Uh, yeah. It's Im- well, impressive that yeah. your nation has so, handled it that well. Yeah, so um, we are having to slow it down because of supply shortages, but they're basically doing a strategy of mm-hmm. slow it down for a month and then when they have more supply, make it go even faster. So that's reassuring to know. Um, but the pro- the problem the problem is that... Um, while I accept that, I just feel like the, in terms of um, pushes for export bans, which would lead to a slowing down of our rate, the EU is basically, they've not painted themselves in a very strong light. And it is very much upset the kind of pro-European group of young voters in the UK, because it's almost like we, we almost feel like we've been taken for a ride for the last few years. In so, that we've, no, been pushing, they, mm-hmm. we've been pushing for to be pro-EU. We've been pushing against Brexit. I mean, I, I went on protests and stuff. I went to London on mm-hmm. protests and stuff about it. But now I feel like while I'm still very pro-EU, I feel like I've been kind of, um, what, what's the word? Um, not cheat. Cheated's too strong, but like kind of, I feel like the, the EU's kind of. Um, you have been taken aback. They, I feel like I've been. T- we feel a little taken advantage of uh, in the while we mm-hmm. still support it. We feel like the EU could just do better about this. But what is reassuring is in, is in the last few days, I think European governments and the EU institutions have realised that this doesn't go away until it goes away for everybody, especially for the EU, because like we we have a plan to provisionally really remove all internal restrictions from the twenty first of June. Like we're slowly, like I explained to you before we started. That's a great claim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It it was a bit ambitious at first, but it's reassuring. Israel's managed to start, uh, uh, managed to some extent because of how successful theirs has gone. It looks more realistic than in Estonia. Right now, Kaya Kalas has said that maybe we should uh, do a lockdown even the whole summer. Yeah. It doesn't slow down. Well, hopefully, hopefully um, you, you guys can sort out your rollout soon. Yes. But, uh, this, mm-hmm. we, we, are, we are hoping to get to the point where we still have external restrictions or you need to prove that you've been vaccinated to leave or enter. Like a vaccination pass? Or, exactly. Or, we have, well, we have a debate about should you have to show one to go to the pub or whatever. That's the debate at the moment. And there's the a kind of civil liberty in Israel, debate. The, in Israel, it's working right now. In Israel, yeah. they're doing this, that you cannot... Uh, visit uh, I don't know the shopping center even if you don't have it. Yeah, exactly. That's the debate. Most people accept here that you may need one to leave the country and enter because in the vast majority of cases, international travel is a choice, and it's very but not rare. Internally. Have to exactly, but internally is is a little different. You, that's a bit more mm-hmm. essential. But in the vast majority of cases, like in, in my lifetime, I don't think I've ever had to travel internationally out of necessity. But I've had, mm-hmm. but I've done it many times by choice. Um, 
so people understand that argument, but it's a question of do the government have the right to enforce that to say you can go shopping, etc. Mm-hmm. So that debate's going on. But this is the thing is we're slowly starting to lift our lockdown. And while we can, uh, if, if we can, and the good thing is the data suggesting we can. But the problem is it doesn't go away. It's a global issue. So while we can isolate ourselves from a global issue, it doesn't go away until everyone starts. So our kind of strategy is let's sort our, ourselves out. And then once we're OK, we can then make sure that the other con- the rest of the world can catch up. I can see now how uh, some of you who are even pro-EU are thinking that maybe it was a good thing to leave EU before because now you have your own better strategy because right now uh, European Union as a whole has had very uh, has had very ineffective response uh, to uh, the COVID-19 plan. So I think that your country has even handled it pretty well but but you have had uh, some downhills as many countries also, but to maybe uh, wrap up the whole discussion on maybe even more po- like funner note, uh, I remember that we talked about uh, uh, what pre- Brexit has mostly, what is the worst thing that Brexit has done? You said that the, the alcohol import, like beer import, you can only deliver 25 <laughs> liters. Uh, yeah. You can import only 25 liters at a time. And it is very sad for you. Yeah, I, You I can forgot, talk about I, it more. I forgot I, I forgot I said about this. I was I was mostly joking. But yes, this is, this is the issue. Uh, because obviously, having, having been to Finland uh, mm-hmm. on Model European Parliament, I know about how Finnish, especially people in Helsinki and further afield in Finland, will will get the get the boat to Tallinn with their car mm-hmm. go to like a big kind of like wholesaler warehouse fill mm-hmm. their car with alcohol because it's cheaper and drive and they drive and get the boat back import just a whole lot of alcohol because i remember there was a there was a there was a joke there was a photo that did that went viral online and it was a guy at a helsinki bus stop with you know one of them like trolleys to like lift really heavy. Oh, yeah, things. I have seen them a lot. And he, he, like... he has, and it's about two and a half to three <laughs> meters tall, and he's just got like loads of like cans of beer just stacked mm. on top of each other, uh, and he's just sat at the bus stop waiting for the bus as if like he's <laughs> he's like gone on foot, but he's now going to wheel it on the bus to take it home. Um. So, but then obviously we have restrictions now that you can take some, but you have an allowance. Um, mm. And the allowance is the allowance caters for what I think most people would bring, but a lot of a lot of people there are a lot of people who may have an issue with it. So mm. the joke at the time was this is a travesty. <laughs> um, but yes, um, the worst it, thing that could happen to you because of Brexit. Yeah, it, less yeah. alcohol. Yeah. Oh, I know. It's. Um, Thankfully, we're not ridiculous. We're not ridiculously expensive, but it is interesting when you go to other countries and you pay much less than you would pay mm-hmm. here. Um, um, but yeah, it's 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 one of those. It's we okay. expected this. We have had very long discussion, wow. almost, uh, we have over an hour. So thank you very much. I would even like to talk about more about Boris Johnson and that, but I think that we should maybe do part two in some time about Brexit yeah, because there's a lot to talk about. 
the, yeah, and hope, hopefully by the time we have a part two, there, there will be more to talk about. Um, we'll mm-hmm. we'll know more about the vaccines. We'll know where we'll know where Europe is on on COVID, etc. So I yeah, hope that um, it will be more effective response by then. Yeah, I I hope so because like I like I say, while I I don't believe in the kind of zero COVID strategy where like eradicate mm-hmm. it, um, because I think that's impossible. We have to vaccinate everyone mm-hmm. and just kind of go about our lives we just have to make sure that we do the most vulnerable people first uh to reduce yes. the death the de- reduce deaths and cases but um yeah um we're not going to get you know this is a global problem and it will not go away until europe is able to do theirs and and then beyond that we need to make sure that asia africa south america they can all do theirs as well it, it's a global issue and we have to deal with it globally mm-hmm but yes, thank you so much. I think that our listeners will be very satisfied to hear some uh, perspective from the UK itself about Brexit and and uh, views on EU. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.